So then, if you awaken from this illusion, persistence of vision. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Persistence of Vision podcast, the podcast where we talk about books with people we love. Hello, folks. I am Lance Fever Myers. And I'm L.B. Dio. We are here for Persistence of Vision Publishing. That's pov-publishing.com for those of you with a computer in front of you. Go check it out. There's all kinds of uh, fantastic material up there already. There's comics you can read. There are uh, essays, poetry, all kinds of great stuff. And uh, there's a link to my novel, which just came out last month. So go buy it and go to the website and read and read and read and have yourself a fantastic conversation about all the good stuff. Yeah. And today we're very fortunate to have David Peters, our guest, who is a fascinating character and has a wonderful new book to talk about. So uh, welcome, David Peters, and let's talk about your books, including Christ Walk Crushed. Yeah, thanks for having me on, and I uh, appreciate being here with you guys. Uh, this is a, a book that I co-authored with Anna Curry, who's a cancer survivor, and she's written a, a couple books in the series of uh, Christ Walk. It's kind of a fitness and uh, spirituality mm-hmm. book that takes you on a 40-day journey. There's there's a lot of um, a lot of history to the number forty yes. um, in Christianity um, and even some other religions too for a time of testing or trial or sifting or whatever you call it. There's also like it rained forty days and forty nights for the yes. flood. There's a number of things that relate to forty. So it's like a forty day journey with readings for each day and then a fitness goal that you set before you even start, like to walk to Jerusalem, to walk to Bethlehem, based on kilometers or miles Mm -hmm. to that distance that you do on your Fitbit or whatever. And so it's trying to integrate our inner lives with our physical lives, which I think the future of any religion or spirituality is going to have to do that in the future uh, and even the present. So uh, this book, though, came out of Anna's experience as a cancer survivor and my experience in the Iraq war as a way of saying those are two events that kind of really turn people's worlds upside down. And what do you do when you felt like your world's been turned upside down? This book is there for you to take you on a 40-day journey of what it feels like when you're crushed. The word crushed, um, the the Latin root of that word is contrition. Mm. Um, You know, it has to do with like breaking big rocks into little rocks sure. <laughs> um, to crush something, but also contrition being a more theological or religious term for what someone feels like when they feel like the weight of everything, the universe has fallen upon them and they're under that pile. We, we have a lot of metaphors for this feeling uh, in the dirt, in the dust. Uh, so what do you do when you have that experience? And this book is there to, to, to offer people a path or a pilgrimage to, um, a sense of wholeness, a sense of who they are again. And uh, it's definitely written from a Christian perspective, uh, as both Anna and I are Christian teachers. But uh, it's, it's um, I, I found that, that uh, suffering is a universal experience in humanity. Yes. And those kinds of knowing that you're not alone when we when go through something is, is, a, is something I've needed. Uh, and I don't want to go on and on about this, but when I was going through my divorce— um, number of years ago now, 
I was just devastated. I'd just gotten back from Iraq. I felt like I lost everything in a way that I had never experienced before. My, my own sense of self, sanity, who I was as a man, all these other things. And it was a book, like a, one of these journey books. Of, I think it was a 365 little short readings about people going through divorce by Jim Smoke. I think it was called 365 Days of Divorce or something like that. Uh -huh. And I read this like every day. And I, I've always been somebody that wants to be seen with the right book mm -hmm. as like a fashion statement almost. <laughs> you know, I was like, I wanted to like see me as an intellectual. I'm carrying a book around. I never was into books that were like this, you self know, help. a little self-help, a daily reading for inspiration. Those were not the kind of books I was wanted <laughs> to be seen with. But here I was needing a book like this at this time in my life. So I wrote this book for people like me who have been through those experiences. And hopefully this book will find the right reader, the people that need that kind of that kind of book. Yes. OK, David. So we uh, we would like to know about your personal experiences, both yours and your co-authors. But uh, starting with yours, the you're an Episcopal priest. You have served uh, in the Marines overseas in Iraq, and uh, that experience over there really transformed the type of work that you've done as a priest, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it, it was the big turning point in my life, the Iraq War. I had served in as an enlisted Marine at a high school and was in the reserves, went through college seminary during that time, and then got out and was going to like start my life um, as a youth minister in Pennsylvania. Just recently been married, had a baby, and the Iraq War started, and nine, well, 9-11 before that, and the Iraq War. And so all this momentum was happening in, in pe with people I knew that were deploying, and I thought, well, I, I kind of want to be part of that. Um, I'm not sure about the war per se, and it did, I didn't need to be sure about the war because I felt like I needed to go be with the people that were serving in it as a chaplain. They needed chaplains, and so I went, and while I was there, I started to realize that I was part of something that was truly evil and awful. Um, I was part of this uh, institution and part of this movement and war that was an occupation that was hurting people on a really big scale. And I, I couldn't have said it that way then or articulated that then, but I felt it. I felt like I wasn't good anymore. Uh, I had the sense of what we now, now call moral injury, which is a term that has really been helping people describe their experience in war and homecoming. But I, I came home feeling quite successful. I had survived this experience. I was going to start life now and there was running water and like all these wonderful things back here in America. And I was, you know, had a, two kids at this time and I was married. I got to serve communion to the president and the president's dad and his mom and his mother-in-law. And they all came to Fort Hood to the army chapel that I was serving at. And it was a really high moment in my life um, that like, wow, I'm, I'm like in you know, this inner circle somehow of, of um, experience. When, in fact, uh, about a week later, I found out my, my wife had a boyfriend, that she um, was seeing the neighbor across the street. They had been together for months. He was in the Army, and I was just devastated. I, my world turned upside down. I felt like I couldn't trust anyone or anything, especially God. I felt like God had abandoned me. I felt just crushed, like in my spirit, soul, body, 
Um, I lost about 30 pounds because I was nauseous all the time. Maybe I would like to get that, that weight loss again. <laughs> it's like a great weight loss plan, this nausea and pain. and and I, But it just turned my world upside down. And I realized, man, everything I've been doing up to this time in my life has been like a lie. It's been like a, like just a, who was I? What was I doing? What was I thinking that this would bring me happiness or some sort of good life? And so it was during that time that I discovered a, a little book that was like a, a, four, it was a 365-day journey for people that had gone through a divorce. And I, w- I would never be seen with that kind of book uh, before. I was into deep intellectual, philosophical stuff, history, um, and great novels and things. Whereas uh, now I was, this book was like a lifeline for me. So the book that Anna Curry and I have written is supposed to be a lifeline for people that have been through that kind of experience where their world turns upside down, where they can't really trust anything anymore, where they feel this this um, feeling of being crushed, this feeling of contrition that that is a... Uh, some, somehow very universal in human experience. But when it happens to us or me, it's always like, wow, this is the first time this has ever happened to anybody. Yeah. So this book is supposed to help people get through the 40 days after something like that. Uh, and and um, it's written very simply, clearly, and it seeks to help people go on a journey of walking or running uh, or some other fitness goal while they're doing this kind of inner spiritual work uh, together and try to integrate those things. So tell us why, why that integration, why does there need to be a physical element to this and how does that help feed and, and how, do the, how do the two work together? Cause you have, um, now tell me again, are, are you, is this about spiritual wellness or is this about mental health? Mm. Um, and then, and then there's a physical side to it as well, right? Yeah. Those are, that's a great question because it points out the big lie that we all live under um, and we're brought up in this way. I don't know where it comes from, like culturally fully, but uh, that there's these really compartmentalized like walls between our mental world, our spiritual world, our physical world, uh, or even in our bodies. Like these are very separate things in, in modern society, even though like you hear it all over the place now, TV, radio, podcasts, like we've got to integrate our mental, spiritual, emotional, physical lives. And yet it, it seems like, for me at least, very difficult to do. And especially before I went through those experiences in Iraq and in homecoming, I was a very, I was able to somehow separate my mental world from my physical world in a way that I couldn't anymore when I was going, had gone through that trauma because I found that that um, my reaction to one, uh, this experience with my marriage breaking up and the Iraq war was a very primal reaction. Like I had a physical reaction to these things that I couldn't really quantify. I had things happening in my body. I, I was nauseous all the time. I had this like pain in my chest. I was hypervigilant, which is a PTSD symptom. I had a lot of these weird, crazy physical manifestations. I started running a lot because that seemed to help kind of calm me down. But what happens to people in trauma is our central nervous systems kind of go on overdrive to to keep us alive. We can't always turn that switch off because we're a physical being. Um, And so uh, that split between our mental, spiritual, emotional world is something that might help us maybe in our early lives kind of get through school and things, but it's not something that helps us when we we experience loss, grief, death, pain, suffering. And so I've, I've always felt like 
um, me, me getting used to this body. And as a Christian, you know, like one of the big tenets of Christianity is this thing called the bodily resurrection of Jesus you know, like that happened. And, uh, you know, we celebrated Easter. It's like the big thing. Um, it was not, it was like unbelievable 2000 years ago. It's still pretty unbelievable today. And yet this thing that, that we believe a, his dead body came back to life. Like that's, that's about the body. The fact that if that's the miracle that we believe in and center their whole faith around, um, maybe our bodies are like special in some way and, and trying to transcend our bodies always is like maybe a, an attractive spiritual goal, but it, it's one that leaves us really empty. Um, and I've tried to do this by becoming really disciplined, really rigorous in my uh, spiritual disciplines and things like that to try to push my body down. Cause you know, our bodies are hungry. Our bodies want sex, our body, you know, this idea that their body wants stuff mm. and wants to consume stuff. And the more integrated we are, the less of a consumer we become. And we live in a world that a capitalist world that says you're valuable if you're a consumer. You can consume. I mean, look at after 9-11, our president said, go buy stuff, buy, buy, buy stuff and we'll save our nation. Yeah. Like, what a response, you know. So we're more than just consumers. We are actually whole beings uh, that are in a physical reality that we live in, which is a very sacred and holy reality. It's also completely ridiculous, the fact that we walk around in these bodies and like this is where we live and how we experience everything that goes on around us. That's very interesting. and It's interesting to hear about the, the sequence of events for you where you came back from, well, you went to Iraq presumably not feeling this sense that it was a moral evil, but during your experiences there, you came to feel that. And then when you came home, you had something just as devastating, but on a much more personal level occur in your personal life with your marriage. And so it seems like the impression I'm getting is that you, the, the, the second experience with the divorce was like a, uh, it shined a light backwards on everything else that you had experienced overseas and so forth and, and put it all in a new perspective. Is that, is that accurate? Yeah, that's a really insightful view of that. Cause I feel like, um, and I, I've seen this in other people's lives, especially on the psych ward that I worked at and at Walter Reed with army and military people that had often been part of a suicide attempt or something like that. And that's why they were there in the psych ward. But this idea that, combat and war and trauma, those kinds of things. I always describe it like it's like a boiling pot, which like everybody has a boiling cauldron of stuff from our childhood and everything in life. And we're basically, we learn how to like keep the lid on that stuff for the most part to live in the society. We have to, and school teaches us this, how do you control your feelings, your emotions, um, and all these sort of like very human aggressive things that we have and and, and yet war, because it's so primal and the survival instincts are like all happening all the time, that lid just is gone. Mm -hmm. And we're no longer able to kind of control the boiling over that happens in just normal life. So I found that, that I was very fragile after those experiences. I was like, you know, these things were happening to me in my personal life and my marriage and things like that. And I had no ability to regulate anything in my life. Um, the lid was off and just everything was boiling over. I'd be angry one minute, 
sad another minute, in a rage the next minute, fearful beyond belief the next minute, and just really unexpected emotions and feelings. And that's because I'm a physical being. I'm an embodied human. Like it's mind, heart, emotions, it all <laughs> swirls together. Anybody that can tell you like that, that one, that we often do this and men often do this to women where we say, think logically, think, you know, we sort of do that as men. I've done it in my life. Um, and yet the, even the, the very, the idea of rationality and logic is an embodied thing that we have that's full of emotion and all sorts of other things as greater thinkers than I have sorted through this. But that's what I experienced firsthand was that that crushing feeling of that my life was now out of control and yes. that those experiences in Iraq that I had sort of just gone, gone with the flow. And that's the thing about the military that I think is probably the least understood part of that culture is that uh, when you're in it, it you're just in the fishbowl and you're in the this, this stream just swimming with the current. Everyone's deploying. Everyone's part of this war. Everyone's shooting rifles all the time. You know? mm. Everyone's marching around. Like it's such a like the loss of your own uh, persona in some ways happens in that military training initially. And then we can be ourselves in this organization. And I found that um, in Iraq in about two weeks, everybody had crossed like the line of death where they didn't feel scared anymore. It was a very normal kind of thing to just be driving around Baghdad with big machine guns pointed everywhere. That was just like a really normal way to live. Yeah. And that was very odd to watch as I was a little older than all these guys. I was like 20, I was like 30 in Iraq. You know, it was real, it was the old man, yeah. but I could see that, that they weren't scared anymore. They just kind of went along with it. And the ability to adjust to those experiences is kind of what makes us one of our great human abilities to adjust to just about anything. But I had adjusted so much that I couldn't think. And you know, it's probably not good to be too philosophical in a war to like think about why we're doing what yeah. we're doing. Because and they, they really discourage that kind of thinking um, because it keeps people from kind of doing their job in the moment. But but when I reflected on the experience and when I reflect on it now, I'm just just profoundly sad and profoundly moved by how ignorant I was of what I re what was really driving me into that war, which was, am I a real man? Can I prove myself this way? And those very deep existential questions of meaning that I think, at least for me, I've always tried to answer by different activities and getting involved in different things. And I found that actually it made me less of a man. <laughs> it made me less of the kind of person I wanted to be. Uh, less kind, less caring, less thoughtful. And so part of my recovery from that has been to just really embrace the the parts of my life that were crushed in those experiences and say, you know, I'm a flawed, broken human being. And I have things in my mental health. I go to the VA clinic for mental health today. You know, I go, you know, regularly there. I see a counselor, a therapist. I see, you know, I, I go to these things f for my own personal well-being because I know I'm not 100%. I'm not the way I used to be. Um, and I, I prefer it this way because I can, like, have some empathy for other people in a way that I couldn't before. And that's hopefully where, like, on the on the good side of suffering, <laughs> that's where we all kind of end up is in some place of deeper empathy and and compassion. Whereas before, I could just really, like, cut things off emotionally in a way that I, I, I can't anymore. And to look at the Iraq war from this distance now, 
it just seems monstrous. It seems um, just like one of the worst ideas ever. And, and people were saying it back then, you know? <laughs> but, but uh, it was really hard to listen, especially, especially for me to do that back then. So what is the time period here? So when, when did you first go? Uh, I had joined the army in 2004 in, in the active duty army to be a chaplain. And then I deployed in 2005, right at the end of the year, December, got back in December 06. So I was there over there a year. And that was during, um, historically in the Iraq war, it was right after the initial success of the invasion, which was extremely successful. You know, it's like the, there was significant resistance from the Iraqi military forces, but it was quickly eliminated. Those people died um, and many of them just faded back into the civilian life. The army was disbanded. All these other kind of bad decisions were made. And then the occupation started. When we were there, people were just starting to kind of die in really weird ways, like getting blown up on the side of the road in a neighborhood that was supposed to be really safe, things that they hadn't experienced yet while they were in Baghdad. And that was because the enemy was getting more organized by that point. And they were bringing in these um, explosive form penetrators, they were called. They were shape charges, which are, um, I don't know. I guess people know about this stuff. I, don't, I didn't know much about it. But a shape charge is like a, a conical a conical shape um, form of a C4 or explosives that as it explodes, it forms like a, like a very focused blast yes. that can cut through heavy armor. It can cut through a tank armor. And so they had just started using these during my deployment there. And it was freaking everybody out because it was like, you can't build a vehicle big enough to save, to save lives. Like this is destroying our biggest, strongest vehicles that are designed to absorb and deflect, you know, blasts from this kind of explosive. And these so, were what they called IEDs. In the, in yeah. The um, improvised explosive devices could be anything. It could be a, you know, big artillery round they'd bury in the road. So when I was there, they were like shooting people that had a shovel. And that was like protocol. And that was the rules of engagement. If you see somebody with a shovel, you shoot them because they're digging a wow. digging a hole for a bomb. But the the uh, EFPs, the explosive form penetrator, were like an extra level of IED, like mm -hmm. a next level. And they were blaming the Iranians for bringing them in. And But I saw them. They were like welded together in a shop. I mean, almost anybody could make these. Um, and so they, but the fact that they could just destroy any of our vehicles was really unnerving. So, so much of the work that my unit and our sister unit did over there was clearing roads. So they would be passable by our military forces, which just was um, mostly work at night. It was like looking for the bombs, basically kind of work. And so uh, then that things got so bad in Baghdad while I was there. The civil war started. We weren't allowed to call it a civil war, of course. It was Sunni versus Shia, pretty much. Break, that's where the line broke down. There was a lot of death squads that were killing young men from one group or the other and piling them in vans and leaving them in different places. And it almost had like nothing to do with the U.S. military. It seemed like, wait, there people are killing each other that aren't us? <laughs> you know, it was very like, what? I thought this was about Al-Qaeda over here you know the, so all these weird things started. Up. the surge happened right after i left with the 15 month deployments that everybody went on and so i just left so i was there during the time where everyone was realizing that this was a losing war 
and it, and the military would never recognize it. You get a new commander every year who says we're going to win. You know, that, that's sort of how it works. And everybody rotates in, rotates out. So that was historically, that was where like people started to realize this. And you thought you would think all that reflection would result in us leaving or doing something like that. The, the problem with war, just like any fight is they're really hard to get out of. They're really easy to get into, hard to get out of. And so that, that, um, that historical time period, I, I feel very emotionally connected to Baghdad, Iraq. I, I feel like, um, I feel like I need to somehow, <laughs> it's not going to end. Hi. So, uh, back to the, so the, the timeline, um, you come back from the war around, uh, 2006 mm-hmm. and so then you enter into this emotional turmoil at home. Um, when did you start writing the book? Uh, the, the book that I wrote during those years was Death Letter, God, Sex, and War, my first book, which wasn't published until like 2014. But, um, and then after that, I'd been working on a dissertation that was about Paul Tillich and post-traumatic theology. So I wrote, the, the second book was about, uh, called Post-Traumatic God, and was about like the theology of post-trauma and trauma. And then uh, this book is the third one that came out this year. So I wrote it like right before it was published. I'm a very much of a procrastinator. <laughs> and it was a group project with Anna and me. So there was a lot of like, hey, have you done this yet? <laughs> you know, that She's very organized, very proactive and, and a really creative writer. Like like you can, it's very clear who wrote what because it's like one day she wrote, next day I write. Um, and it's very clear who's writing, but it's also a different voice, which is her voice is really, really comes through really strongly in this. So why don't you walk us through a little bit of the book? Tell us about uh, sort of one day in the walk. Yeah. Um, one of the, the places, one of the things I like about this book is, and it was Anna's idea, was to uh, start out with a little conversation with God. Um uh, kind of in like a kind of a little bit of a comedy bit, if you will. <laughs> um, I'll think of one. Um, uh, let's see. Uh, and that, that was her idea, but I enjoyed writing these, these little backs and forth. Um, like it starts out me. Hey, God. Yeah, God. Yes. Me. What's the worst thing I could do? God. Technically, it's already been done, and I'm not sure it was all that bad. And then we talk a little bit about, like, the human condition of, of what we would, you know, what we used to call sin, um, which is not a modern English word we use in conversation, other than chocolate, we have sinfully delicious chocolate. But it's like, a, like the word naughty used to really mean, like, something really terrible, and now it means, like, you know, like it's just it's kind of silly. And sin is like that, too. So we kind of talk about... Uh, helping people kind of parse out post-trauma, like like what what is sin and what is just the shit of this world that they've like somehow been connected to or been crushed by or because I think a lot of people just have really uh, you know these impulses we have when bad things happen is like what did I do to deserve this? And I know like we're all smarter than to really answer <laughs> ask that question, but. But there's something instinctive in ourselves that asks that. Um, and then we like, well, it must have done something terrible to to deserve this. And so we try to help people kind of walk through that slowly. Like, 
yeah, there's always a part of us that probably didn't do something right. And we've got to own up to that, acknowledge it, deal with it. There's also a big part of life that is really no way of fully understanding why it happens. And uh, that, that's that parsing out. So that first um, first intro in the book is kind of talking about the language of moral injury, and which is that idea of things done and left undone in our lives, things we wish were different, things we wish... A lot of parents have moral injury just from, like, you know, being a crappy parent most of the time and feeling like I should have been more patient, I should have been more... You know, these, like, these guilt feelings that a lot of parents have. But there's a deeper, like, uh, people that have um, served in the military often have moral injury. People that are incarcerated have a lot of moral injury because often in the moment of of a, um, a violent act or some other thing that puts people in jail or, or works for in a war, there was a context in which uh, it seemed like the only thing they could do. And this is where moral injury gets really kind of crazy is that moral injury comes from often from places where the thing you do violates your conscience and you know, you know, this is wrong, but it's also something you have to do because you're in the army, because you're in a exchange of money and you're in a, say a gang that, that has to be violent (laughs) to be, to exist. Or there's other, these contexts where in the context, it's kind of like the right thing to do. And yet it's completely uh, wrong. It's completely hurtful to other people. And that, that really, plays um, tricks on our sense of morality, our sense of goodness. And uh, I found that 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 language of moral injury really helps people sort through trauma and those kind of experiences. Because war is an upside-down moral universe where where gentleness will get people killed, where weakness is a liability, where, where you know, bravado and, and violence and threat is valued, and all these really weird moral switches that people are just like forced to make in these contexts. And there's always stories of people that resist that, um, even in the middle of wars who say, no, I'm not going to kill that prisoner or I'm not going to do something that clearly will violate my conscience. But those things, those, those are very rare events. Um, and you know, from very minor atrocities to really major atrocities, most people just kind of go along with it, which we see in our, our world today, how easily used to we used to evil we can become when people are being hurt and and killed. So yes, it's it's interesting. We talk about uh, the idea that people are culpable for their actions, of course, and that seems to be pretty essential to actually having a human civilization. But at the same time, when we think about it honestly, when we look at someone who has committed a terrible act, we're frequently realize the difference between us and that person is largely if not entirely a matter of f- blind luck that that we were fortunate not to be in a situation like that and that person was not so fortunate that's a that's a good way to put it because the idea that that we're all in this together like everybody has some kind of moral injury generally speaking in life um things that they wish had gone differently uh and that that our common humanity says that yeah, we're not that different from people that have done really horrible things. We want to, you notice when the police ever talk about a criminal that they're like trying to arrest or arrested, it's always an individual. They always say the word, this individual came in here and they use that individual word so much. They're trying to say, this person, we know he's a person, but he's not like the rest of us. He's very much an individual. And we're like, 
he's actually a human being. He had a mother, you know, like there's, there's a lot that is similar and it is, seems like just arbitrary things, luck that makes us different than them. And what do those people do? Once you have had a moral injury, what do you do? That's, that's really the question I'm trying to ask and try to answer for people a little bit. Um, and I found that, that doing things with our bodies, because often it was our, it was our, a physical thing that got us into this mess. It was a physical action. For instance, in a military context, um, a physical action of, of one, one ways, one of the ways people get moral injury is by not helping people that need help. And in military context, there's a lot of those circumstances where people are wounded, they're hurt, but the mission demands that they, that you go in this direction. You don't help somebody. My experience with moral injury that I talk about in a couple of different places in here, um, is when I witnessed uh, a young soldier, Iraqi soldier, punching an old man on the side of the road, just laid him out, hit him so hard. He just fell over and kind of was like showing his like power in that moment to us, the American military that was like rolling through this checkpoint. And the fact that I didn't do anything and nobody did anything about that injustice, a very minor injustice when you think of the big scale of like the Iraq war. But for me, it was like I was part of that injustice. So what do people do when they feel like, wow, I was part of this. And I found that because it was a physical experience, it's physical things that help people get out of these experiences and move on. Um, Even that language of moving on is a pilgrimage metaphor that you physically move on from something and emotionally move on. So walking has historically been a penitential practice in medieval society. And even before that, if someone was morally injured, had done something awful, um, you know, the criminal justice system back then was pretty simple, but there were some things that weren't necessarily crimes, but, but were sins. Um, and the, some of them were quite atrocious, like killing of prisoners in a war was technically not a crime in the middle ages, unless the King thought it was, you know, but like, it was like what you did and as a soldier. And yet, uh, you can imagine the profound moral injury those people would have when they came back to normal society and realized, oh, I just did that. Um, so pilgrimage was a way for those people to go away, disappear, and suffer. And like they would walk barefoot to these pilgrimage sites. So, and no weapons. They wouldn't carry any money. Um, all those symbols and trappings of power were now gone because they had used power to hurt people. So now they're going to like div- divest themselves from power. I think that's a really profound way to to find healing after moral injury is to go on a journey like that. And this book is supposed to be a Christ walk. It's a journey <laughs> metaphor book and, and actually a physical journey with that I think really helps people in this kind of world where we're not really sure what to do when we're the one who did something. Um, this next book I'm working on for church publishing is uh, about people that have killed accidentally um, who've been in car wrecks and other things like that, who, you know, aren't the victims, they're the perpetrators. And what do they do with all this stuff that is somewhere between uh, a murder charge and a car insurance claim? (laughs) It's like in this weird moral (laughs) gray area. Uh, So, so I'm trying to like write for those people. And there's a lot of us. Definitely. Do you think that we're, uh, we should move on to our lightning round? Sure, absolutely. But I would like to say, um, at a time when um, 
this is touchy maybe, but at a time when I feel like Christianity in this particular country, this particular time is responsible for a lot of insidious, judgmental, uh, awful um, developments, I, I, I really feel like you're a breath of fresh air and I appreciate what you do in these writings. It's, it's, it's inspiring. It's very, uh, it feels very kind and com- coming from the right place. Yeah, kindness is a thing that a lot of Christian traditions don't value a whole lot. <laughs> um, God is love is like one of our biggest doctrinal statements ever in Holy Scripture and things like that. But it's like, oh, we're not going to really emphasize that one. <laughs> it might make you too wishy-washy on certain things. Because a lot of uh, patriarchal religion, the kind of religion I grew up in, is about maintaining the status quo and the order of society. and. Mm centered around worship of the nuclear family or whatever that means. It's like a word that we use nuclear, but this is like Christianity that you see writ large across America as being like, this is the normal Christianity. When in fact, Christianity has always been a subversive religion in its own right. It was in the first century. There's always been a, a undercurrent of dissent and saying like, no, this isn't about power. This is about love. And we need to learn how to love people that are different than us. And that those voices get quieted down real quickly. I think we live in a time where the Trump presidency has has really like just been so outrageous in its displays of of this that particular kind of Christianity that a lot of other Christians are now like stepping up to the plate and saying, "Wait a second, this is not Christianity," you know, as 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 I've experienced it in the life of Jesus. Like this is something completely different. So getting back to like that life of Jesus to me is a way as an antidote to that power play of religion that always allies itself with um, power. It's, it's interesting to note in the Texas Declaration of Independence, um, it cites priests and standing armies as being the two enemies of the people or something like that, or two enemies of democracy or the people or something like that. It's, it names those two, which the founders of, America felt that way too, um, as well in the constitution, but the Texas one particularly names those two groups of people. I'm like, Oh, that's been pretty much my whole life. (laughs) Priest standing army. I can see how this does hurt people. And, uh, so I have a heart for soldiers that are on active duty, you know, and serving and they're Christians and they love God and they love their neighbor and they got to do this job that is about blowing people up you know, when the time comes. Um, and, so, and so I, you know, and I don't go into this book, but post-traumatic God goes into this and some others where um, the idea of nationalism in nationalism, everything the state does is morally correct and right. Um, unless somebody thinks it's not, you know, that it's in power. But, but so we don't even like see military service as being inherently evil in America because everything we do as a country is morally right, even for Christians. And this is where Christians have really lost the the good news of Jesus, is in the early church, all the way up into the era of the Crusades, war was always a sin. It was always wrong. It was always evil. It was sometimes what they would call necessary evil. And so if we needed people to defend us from an invasion or something, they Christians could engage in that sort of military service, but they had to do it under very strict um, rules, religious rules. And they often like had to get rebaptized when it was over, when they left the military, like they had to start their Christian life over from zero. 
um, which I think is a really great way to look at it. Um, Cause that's kind of what I had to do when I left. Mm-hmm. I had to start over completely with like every area of life. Cause that was the only way to like to live after those experiences. But that's a, thanks for bringing that up about Of course. Okay. So Christianity. Yeah. speed round. Yeah. You ready? Yeah. When was the first time you fell in love with a book? Uh, the the illustrated picture Bible when I was five, I read it cover to cover. It was like a um, cartoon version of the Bible that just I, I it was the first book I ever read, and I read it straight through. It was cartoons, you know. But I was five, and it, like, and I still think of the when I read the Bible, I still see those pictures, like when I read it. Fantastic. <laughs> okay, so uh, when was the, the, the first time a book ever changed your mind about anything? Or has a book ever changed your mm. mind about anything? Yeah. Um, I think the question of abortion um, mm. is one that is a hugely controversial thing in Christianity. Um, I read Cider House Rules, and that was a book about, um, in many ways, about uh, how abortion functioned in... Um, you know, in America. And that, that book really changed my mind on that issue about what I thought about it. Um, coming from a, you know, very, um, anti pro choice, <laughs> if you will, pro life, um, childhood, seeing abortion as murder, that book really like broke that loose for me. Wow. Um, that's a fantastic made it a human answer. story. Yeah. Okay. Uh, well, uh, in the same vein, has a book ever changed your life? Could be the same. Yeah, <laughs> uh, Kierkegaard's Fear and Trembling. Okay. I read it like uh, summer in, um, I was working at a camp. I read it and I was like, oh, this is like, this is Christianity for me. Like, interesting. Like, I'd heard he wasn't a real Christian, like right. in co- Bible college, but I read him. I was like, oh, this is what I, what I think about these things. And I, it was one of those times where, like it resonated with me mm-hmm. as a young man. Like, wow. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Should have you come back and talk about Fear and Trembling. It's a ah, really interesting book. It's the craziest book in the world. That would be great. That would be fantastic. <laughs> I still and don't understand it I'd all. have you back to, to, to talk about Paul Tillich as well. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Oh, yeah. Um, okay, so has a book ever uh, made you cry? Yes. I'm trying to think the most recent one. <laughs> it's a... Uh, Michael Morton's book about it's called Getting Life, where he is falsely accused of murdering his wife, does 25 years in Texas prisons, and then is exonerated. Um, I read his book, Getting Life. It's about his when he would cry himself to sleep quietly, like everybody does in jail um, every night. And I cried when I read that. Wow. Okay, uh, they missed his son. Uh, has a uh, what, what's a book that you've uh, read more than once? Fear and Trembling by Kierkegaard. <laughs> <laughs> also, Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Um, sure. And and Lord of the Rings. Okay. And just about every C.S. Lewis book, because I was like uh-huh. one of the first authors who like grabbed me as a teenager. Yeah. So I've read that a bunch. Okay. Those a bunch. Uh, and and the million dollar question, which always surprises me, who who has and who hasn't uh, committed any poetry to memory. Do you have any? Yeah. Yes. Can, yeah, you, sh- can um, you share a short one yeah, with us? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, I want to do one of Shakespeare's sonnets, cause, um, but I, I'm afraid I'll m- bumble through the last part. But uh, That's okay. Yeah. We're all very forgiving here. <laughs> yeah. The, I feel like uh, the, the rise, the, the decrease of memorized poetry 
and the rise of tattoos like sort of are like a you know because we need like something to carry with us for meaning and and when people stop memorizing poetry like i think that's when they start getting that's my wacky theory completely unscientific i love it because they're both meaning making um i would okay let me not to the marriage of true minds admit impediments love is not love which alters when it alteration finds nor bends with a remover to remove. Oh no, it is an ever-fixed mark who's, that looks on death and is never shaken. It is a star to every wandering bark, though, whose worth's unknown, although his height be taken. Though rosy lips and cheeks... Oh, loves not time's fool, though rosy lips and cheeks within his bending sickle's compass come. Love borrows not with his brief hours or weeks, but bears it out even to the edge of doom. If this be, if this be something and something true, I never writ nor no man ever loved. If this be error and upon me proved, I never writ and no man ever loved. Shakespeare. Fantastic. Fantastic. (laughs) Thank you. David Peters. You guys are great. Thank you. You're great. This was a great talk. We're delighted to have had you. Uh, Thank you so much for sharing your experiences, your wisdom, your book. The book is Christ Walk Crushed, and it's uh, it's available. How do how do we get this book? Uh, Of course, the big river in Brazil. uh, Amazon Amazon. and uh, church publishing or the trunk of my car. I can deliver a copy. He will come to your house. Um, I recently gave a copy to a woman whose son uh, was going through a divorce and, um, and it's one of those kind of books that you kind of leave around when someone's really struggling and Mm -hmm. maybe they'll find it like a book like this found me. So, um, you know, maybe not for yourself, but for somebody else. Um, but yeah, Amazon churchpublishing.com is the publisher Morehouse press. And then, um, you know, yeah. If you go to your local bookstore and ask for a book, they'll get it. They like That's get true. it. You know, it's like and then they'll be like, oh, what a great author. We should carry more of his books <laughs> or her Do books. That. And it's like and, and authors will be forever grateful and leave an Amazon review. Thanks. Thank you, David Peters. And we are uh, POV publishing dot com POV dash publishing dot com. Persistence of Vision Publishing. This is the Persistence of Vision podcast. Lance Fever, any last words? Uh, let's see. So um, will this go up tomorrow? If it goes up tomorrow, then there's still time to see me. Co- go, go read at the One Page Salon, which would be uh, July 2nd, to uh, promote my book, Why So Much, which is also available on Amazon. And uh, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening, ladies and gentlemen. Good day. <laughs> <laughs>